grab a Bible. Turn to Romans chapter 8 and also Galatians 4. If you need a Bible, Bud will loan you one for the service. I don't know if Pastor Rob mentioned, if he did, forgive me for repeating. Uh, if you have questions about hope and future, he's going to be right outside the sanctuary after this service. If you'd like to serve, but over that way, um, if you'd like to serve either before Wednesday the 14th, on Wednesday the 14th during the day, or the evening, the event happening on Wednesday the 14th, all of those options are available, and Rob is the person who knows all about it. Romans chapter 8, headed to Galatians 4. My daughter was home last weekend. A couple of you asked about her. She goes to school in Springfield, Missouri. But she was home for Thanksgiving, which doesn't Thanksgiving feel like it was a month ago? <laughs> she didn't make it to church. This is why some people asked. She was under the weather, which a lot of people are. Pray for your church family. We've got RSV and KGB and FBI and, and every other virus under the sun. Caleb, our, our intern from New Jersey, is still in New Jersey. He was supposed to come back on Wednesday, and he's been laid low with fever and cough and everything else, and, and he's one of many. Keep, keep your church family in prayer. But, but Michaela was home, and it was great. Thanksgiving is, just, it's, Thanksgiving is, is special for our family. But my favorite part of the weekend was actually, I think, what happened right before she left. Not the fact that she left. I hate that part. <laughs> but what happened as she was leaving. She needed to get, she got up early Monday to drive back and she had to work at 10, so she was trying to hit the road by 5.30 or so. So, you know, that's what dad sued up for. I got up early to help, thinking she's going she's, she's to need me to wake her up, probably. And she's certainly going to need my help to get packed up and get the car loaded and get out the door and get on the road on time. Well, I wake up and she's already up. And I said, well, let me, let me, let me take your bag out to the car. It's already there. Well, you know, you, you should bring your winter jacket back. And she said, yeah, I put, I put it, it's in the back seat. I put it there last night. Well, you, you want me to run? I'll run to the corner. I'll fill your car with gas. So you know, yeah, did that last night too. Okay, do you have cash? Yes, I do. Because you know that one gas station, I know, it never, their credit card machine never works. Okay, but do you have your cash in two different places in case I lose one or one gets stolen? Okay, well, you know, you should really cue up your music now so you're not looking down at your phone. Try, got, got my whole Spotify playlist here. Got my road music right here, Dad. Well, don't forget there's construction north on Joplin. I don't go that way. You go that way. I never go that way. Anyway, I got to get on the road. Love you, Dad. And she's, she's off. And I thought to myself... What happened to my little girl? Because that, that's an adult driving down the road. I didn't have to get up and get her packed. or get. I, I, I just needed to stay out of her way. <laughs> and for a moment, I stood there on the porch, like insanely proud. I wanted to go wake up the neighbors. And did you see that? That's my daughter adulting over there. The neighbors were awake. They probably thought I was nuts because I'm standing out there in my dad robe just looking down the empty street. <laughs> but I didn't care because that was my daughter. That was a strong, independent woman who don't need no dad. I'm thinking, how great is that? But a day later, a thought hit me. As I was, I'll be honest, I was replaying that scene over and over in my mind, enjoying it, letting myself feel proud all over again of the daughter that we raised. Look out, world, my strong, independent daughter is out there adulting. But it hit me. Does that idea, does our 
idea of what a parent is and what a child is and how that relationship grows and evolves, can that maybe also be the source of some of our problems in our relationship with God our Father? It's a thought I want to explore this morning. We left off last week, Romans 8, verses 12 and 13, Paul talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We took the opportunity to talk about the importance, the blessing of being, being filled with the Spirit. We pick up this morning in verse 14. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We're going to pause there because the second half of verse 17 really bridges into a whole new thought, which is going to be next week talking about the fellowship we have with Christ in his suffering. But we're going to leave that for next week because Paul just gave us a lot to chew on this morning. He just reminded us we're not only filled with the Spirit of God, we're sons and daughters of God, adopted by God and beloved by God, not because we're his creation. We, we, we are and we're made in the image of God, but he loves us the way that he loves us today because we're his children. And that's a huge idea. That, that's an enormous idea and a chapter full of enormous ideas. I remember hearing a pastor talk about Romans 8 once. He said, Romans 8 is like going to brunch in a fancy restaurant. It's like one amazing thing after another. You walk in and the first thing you see is this tower of fruit. And you're thinking, wow, I could just eat that. But right behind that is the omelet station. And the chef is going to town doing omelets to order, but next to him is this tall plate of perfectly cooked bacon. And you look past that and somebody's saying, hey, you got to try these croissants. But meanwhile, you're mesmerized because at the carving station, there's prime rib. Romans 8 is like, sorry if you didn't have breakfast before you came. <laughs> But Romans 8 is like that. It's this buffet of blessings, each one more amazing than the last. We're saved. But, 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 but wait, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. But wait, there's more. We're children of the true and living God. Now, don't take the analogy too far. These, these aren't distinct sequential experiences. They're, they're different aspects of the same experience, right? They're all aspects. They're all facets of our salvation. We're going through them one at a time, but as we do, we shouldn't miss the connectedness that Paul's actually underlining here. To be saved, verse 9, to be saved is to be indwelt, and to be indwelt, verse 14, is to be a child of God. They're all interconnected. But at the same time, Paul is, is telling us they're all worthy of note, and they're all worthy of awe. They're all interconnected, but Paul doesn't want us to take any one of them for granted. And he's trying really hard to make sure that we don't. He's saying, hey, believer, Christian, you're a child of God. And can you slow down? Can you pause for just a minute and think about that? Because if we think about it, we'll remember, we'll realize we weren't born that way, any of us. We did not start out in the relationship with God that we enjoy today as believers in Jesus Christ. We began our lives as different kind of children. We were children of wrath. 
That's an idea that Paul takes three chapters to develop in Romans, if you remember. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 were all about the idea that we were born sinners and destined for hell. By the time Paul writes Ephesians, he's got that down to just three words, children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 3, if you want to track that down. And it fits. It fits. It fits not only with what Paul developed early in this letter, it, it fits with everything that Jesus ever taught us. John 8, 44, just to grab one place, John 8, 44, Jesus says we're children of the devil. That's who we were until Jesus intervened, until Jesus died in our place, until we accepted his death as payment for our sins. Children of the devil. But when we came to Christ, everything changed, didn't it? John 1.12, when we came to Christ, well, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. John 1.12. Today we're children of God. That was God's plan all along. Jesus wasn't an ambulance sent to the site of a wreck. God breathed the universe into existence knowing that we would crash the system knowing that he would send his son to redeem us and adopt us into his family. Flip over to Galatians 4, because Paul talks about the same thing there. He adds a couple nuances that I think are worth grabbing. Galatians chapter 4. How did we become God's children? He adopted us. He just said so in Romans 8. He says so even more clearly in Galatians 4. Look at verse 4. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We weren't sons. We weren't daughters. We were slaves. We were slaves to sin, to the world, to our flesh, slaves to Satan. And as slaves, we were condemned under the law. We weren't going to inherit anything except God's wrath. But when the time was right, God did something about that. Not when we turned 18 or 21. Not when we decided to throw off the yoke of our oppressors. When the time was right in God's eyes, God unilaterally made arrangements to adopt us. God took steps to allow us to become his sons and daughters and be grafted into his family which in Roman culture, Paul is writing from Roman culture to Roman culture, so that's what he's referencing, that meant immediately the person being adopted would be granted, would be conferred all rights and privileges of that new family, of their new status. And, and that wars a little bit with our picture adoption here in the United States, because we typically think about adoption as something that happens with children. In Rome, it would be an, a, a transaction between adults. If a wealthy man wanted to bring someone in to run his business, and he didn't have children, or he didn't think his children were able, he would adopt someone into his family, adopt someone into that role, and they'd immediately step into it. Which, which meant, here's the point, that meant that it would only happen after careful contemplation. Is this the right person? It would only happen after thoughtful deliberation. Is this the right time? It would only happen after extensive preparation. Is my family ready for this transition? Some of you have adopted children. 
Some of you are adopted children. So you, you can relate a little more directly with what Paul's talking about. You know adoption doesn't happen like this. You don't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'm going to adopt someone. It doesn't happen just because you decide to. It doesn't happen the day that you want it to. You don't walk into the adoption agency and say, I'll take this one and, and, and bring the, the child home. It happens after preparation. It happens at the right time. I had friends when I was in New Jersey serving at the church there who adopted two boys from Russia. Our church was active in ministering in Russia, and they had visited orphanages in Russia a number of times, ministered to these kids several times. The Lord had really knit their hearts together, and they felt that they were called to adopt at least one of them. Initially, it was just one of them. And that began this, this mishigas of trips to Russia and back and back and forth and time and delays. And eventually they figured out that God's hand was on the delay. He was making sure that it happened exactly the right time. There was some stuff that had to be worked out. And Paul is saying, hey, same thing with Jesus. God didn't just decide whimsically, you know what, today I'm going to redeem humanity. You know what happened at the right time? at a specific time, at a foreordained time. Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about why Christmas. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we celebrate Jesus' birthday when we have no idea when it was? You're familiar with the debate, I'm sure. Was, was Jesus born in the winter, or in the spring, in the fall? Why do, we, why do we just pick a date and celebrate? Part of the answer, part of why we celebrate Christmas, is whenever Jesus was born... Jesus was born. When it, whenever it was that Jesus came, he came. There's going to be more on Christmas Eve. That's not the whole sermon. But you, you, you should still come. But, but the thing is, we, we might not know the exact time, but we know it was the perfect time. We know it was a God-ordained time, and we can speculate why. We talked about this, I don't know, four Christmases ago, maybe? We talked about how... 2,000 years ago, people were prophetically prepared. They had all the information they needed to recognize their Messiah. They were spiritually prepared. It was a time of, of idolatry and emptiness. They were hungering for a Messiah. It was also a time where the world was practically prepared. Rome was enforcing Pax Romana. They were enforcing peace. They were imposing a one-world language on the Western world, and they were building roads like no one has built before or since. So it was easy to get the word out. What word? The word that God has sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might be redeemed and adopted. You know, another thing I remember from my friends in New Jersey, in order to adopt, they had to meet all kinds of qualifications. Background checks and job and income and home and church and references. There were legal requirements in the U.S. and Russia, and I can't remember what country it was, but whatever country they, they stopped at, they connected through coming back. It was crazy. To adopt us, God needed to meet legal requirements as well, didn't he? The law required payment for our sin. It couldn't just go away. Our crime required punishment. Since punishment was death, that required someone to be born of a woman, verse 4, someone who could die. But it also needed to be someone who could keep the law perfectly. Jesus couldn't die for our sins if he had committed sin, because then he would have needed to die for his own sin. The law required someone who would magnify the law in his life 
and bear its curse in death. Which brings us to another aspect of adoption. Adoption costs too much. Let, let me editorialize for just a moment. Something is seriously wrong in a country where abortion is free and adoption costs tens of thousands of, of dollars. I mean, that's, that's what my friends paid, but, but people who adopt domestically, it's not much different. Background checks and agency fees, for my friends it was plane tickets. And when they went to pick them up, they were hit with this, this orphanage fee that no one had told them about, which I'm convinced was just extortion. They had gotten that far, and the orphanage knew, okay, they've gotten this far, they're not going to give up. We can hit them up for another $1,000. What are they going to do? Say no? The funny thing, my, my friends were, were glad to pay it, though. Whatever it takes, we just want to take our son home. They even realized at the time, they said to each other at the time, and they came back saying, we paid a price to redeem him. And of course, God paid an orphanage fee for us. He paid our fee in blood. But he paid it just as gladly, more gladly. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Why? So he could take us home. So he could make us sons and daughters. And that, that's staggering when you think about it. The Son of God became a son of man so that sons of man could be sons and daughters of God. That's staggering. That, that's who you and I are. You and I who have come to Christ, saved by the blood of Christ and indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, are sons and daughters with Christ. Sons and daughters of God. And I'll tell you, that is a far, far greater thing than even our justification. I know that's blasphemy. It sounds like blasphemy to our evangelical ears. There's something greater than having our sins forgiven? It's true, though. At the cross, Jesus poured out mercy as God poured out on him the wrath that we deserve. But, but that's only the beginning. That's only that first table of the buffet. And it's amazing, but it's followed by things that are even more amazing. Our sins are forgiven? Wow! But we're indwelt by God's Spirit? Wow! And God makes us His children? He adopts us into his household? That's the most amazing idea yet. I'm not meaning to lowball justification. Justification is huge, and it's utterly necessary. It's, it's, it's the gateway, it's the entryway to all of the other blessings. If, if we're not justified by Christ's death, if we don't choose to accept his death as payment for our sin, nothing else after that matters. Nothing else is accessible. There's nothing else to talk about because we're still dead in our sin. Without Christ's forgiveness, we're guilty before God, and that's the end of the story. But once we are justified, if we say yes to Jesus, once we are justified, that's only the beginning. Once we're justified, Paul is saying there's so much more to talk about because justification, when you get right down to it, is just a legal condition. I mean, it, justification is literally a legal term. It's a legal way of saying somebody is not guilty. doesn't necessarily mean that they're innocent. You and I weren't innocent. We were not guilty. Why? Because someone else was tried and convicted and punished for our crimes. But however you get there, justification is what happens when the judge bangs his or her gavel and says the defendant is free to go. 
Adoption, check this out. Adoption is when the judge then takes off his robes, steps down from the bench, wraps his arms around that defendant, and says, come home with me. That's not my illustration. That's J.I. Packer. That's from a great book called Knowing God. And, and he goes on to say, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is an even greater thing. And he couldn't be more right. Except maybe if we stop to consider who it was that God was adopting. Us. Few years after my friends adopted their first son, they went back to Russia to adopt his biological brother. When they started the process, the people at the orphanage asked, why? Why do you want to adopt him? He, he was developmentally delayed. He, he had some motor skill issues. He had some cognitive impairments. No one reasonably expected that he would ever live alone. Why would you want to take on this burden? Why would you want to adopt him? And my friend's answer, quite simply, was, he's my son. And it's a beautiful echo of what God did. Russell Moore, in a great book called Adopted for Life, Russell Moore, who, who is an adopted parent, says, imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child, but as you meet with a social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of therapy since he was three. He burns things and has attempted repeatedly to skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, the social worker says, although she doesn't really fill you in on what that means. She continues with a little family history. The boy's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Each of them ended their own lives. Think for a moment, would you want this child? And if you did adopt him, would you watch nervously as he played with your other children? Would you watch nervously as he looked at the knife on the kitchen table? Would you leave the room as he watched a movie on TV with your daughter? And the point is, that was us. Depraved criminals, every one of us, inveterate sinners. And that's how much God loves us. He loves us so much, he didn't just pay the price to get us out of the orphanage. He didn't just liberate us from the institution. He didn't just, just pay to get us out of the group home. Even if he had, that alone would have been the greatest act of love the universe had ever seen. But he didn't just redeem us, he brought us home. Brought us home, Patrick? You, you mean he's bringing us home? Yeah, one, one day Jesus is going to return and he. No, I'm, I mean brought us home. Look again at Romans 8, verse 15. We receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, right now, present tense, are children of God. Yeah, in one sense, we're waiting for Jesus to take us home. That's true. But while we're waiting, what did God do? While we're waiting, what has God done? While we're waiting, he's made a home for himself in our hearts. We're children of God, verse 16. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and join heirs with God. I'm sorry, join heirs with Christ. And the very first thing we inherited 
As soon as we were saved, the very first thing we inherited, the very first thing God gave us was himself. God the Holy Spirit living in us. Do we get that? Do we appreciate that? God's love for us did not stop at the cross. The cross was the beginning. The cross, listen, the cross was where he started to be our father. The cross is where he began a relationship that he wants to continue forever. And that makes it really different than our American perspective of fatherhood and childhood. Because our relationship with God the Father is one he wants us to never outgrow. It was one thing when my friend rescued the boys from the orphanage. And rescue is the right word. Not enough food, not enough sleep, not, enough, not warm enough clothes, abuse from staff and older boys. It was one thing to come to their rescue. It was another thing to bring them home, to love them, to hug them. Read some time, not right after you've eaten, the effects of being raised in an orphanage, especially in Eastern Europe, and to be deprived of touch for years. If you really want to screw a child up, don't hug him or her. The, the, the studies on the impact of that coming out of places like Romania are, are staggering. It was one thing to come to the rescue. It was another thing to take them home and be their parents, protect them, provide for them, guide them, educate them, share with them everything that they were and everything that they had to give. That's what God did for us. And it's what he wants to continue doing for us. It's who he wants to be to us. We're heirs of everything he has. We're beneficiaries right now of everything he has to give. Do we realize that? And are we willing to accept it? G.I. Packer again, if the thought of being God's child and having God as my father is not the thought that controls my worship and prayer and my whole outlook on life, that means I don't understand Christianity very well. And I think maybe we don't. Because if I think about adoption, our adoption by God, our Father, adoption that makes us his sons and daughters, it strikes me that an awful lot of our society wars against that whole idea. It, it wars with a right understanding of the amazing reality. And th that was the thing that hit me, like rock falling on the coyote the, the day after my daughter left. Because I'm sitting there kind of replaying in my mind, being proud all over again of how independent she was. Because that's what we're supposed to do, right? As parents, we're supposed to work ourselves out of a job. Success is when they're out of the house and no longer dependent on us. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm, I'm still crazy proud of the independent woman my little girl has grown into. But does that idea, that ideal that we strive for, war a little bit with the dependency that we get to have with God our Father, the, the, the dependency we're called to have, that we're supposed to have, that we get to have. There, there's a mixed message there, isn't there? Grow up. Stop being dependent. We use that word. I'm taking you off my insurance. I'm not going to claim you on my taxes anymore, but that means I'm not wiping your nose anymore either. <laughs> move, out of, move out of the house. Learn to survive on your own. 
And, and sure, we, we still get to enjoy the relationship between parent and child, but you got to work to the point where you enjoy the relationship. You don't need it anymore. That's what we teach our kids, right? Is it any wonder, then, that we grow up to be people who resist the idea of being dependent on a father? We fight the idea that we're supposed to ask him for protection and provision. The idea of going to him for wisdom and and guidance wars with us because we spent the first 20 years of our life being programmed. We're supposed to work towards independence from our mother and father. 20 years. Grow up and be independent. Grow up and be independent. Be more mature. Don't be a baby. Be more independent. And then we come to church as adults and we're told we're supposed to live in dependency on God our Father. Is it any wonder that we're a little messed up on that point. We take the lessons that we've learned so well from our home life, we apply them to our spiritual life, and we have a relationship with God, our Father, like we were taught. God, I'm sure glad you're there if I need you, but I'm going to try really hard not to need you. God wants us to need him. God wants us to need him, expects us to depend on him. How do we know? Lots of ways. There's the, the, the easy, obvious one in this passage is Paul's use of the word Abba. And we know this. Abba means Papa or Daddy. I, however we translate it, it's a child's word. It implies a child's relationship. It's a word that suggests familiarity and intimacy and affection and trust. But more than anything, it's a word that shouts dependency. And it's, and it's not the only time we encounter this idea. I'm not building a whole doctrine from one word. Jesus says the same thing repeatedly. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, Jesus makes the same point. We come to the, fa- to the Father how? As little children. Matthew 18.3, it's also in Mark and Luke. We come to the Father, Matthew 18.3, as little children. We have what kind of faith in him? Childlike faith, same passage. We pray to him how? Matthew 7.11 is a father who wants to give good gifts to his children. A father who wants to give good gifts to his children, Matthew 7.11. And it's that same relationship, that relationship between a loving father and a small, needy child that Paul's invoking here, that he's referencing and reminding us of here. What's that relationship like? There, there's, there's five things lurking, I think, in these, in these verses. The first, God is saying, hey, I want to be constant presence in your life. We read it last week in verse 9, but it bears repeating. The Spirit of God dwells in us. Why is that important? What was your greatest fear as a small child? Mine was being abandoned by your parents, and I think that, that that's fairly universal being left behind. One of my first scary memories was when I thought my mom left me at Target. That's terrifying for a small child. The orphanage where my friends adopted his kids, they leveraged that. They weaponized that. They used that as a means of control. They would threaten kids with locking them away, with leaving them alone, with leaving them behind. To the point where my friend figured out pretty quickly when he brought them to the States, if he wanted to discipline them, which dads do, 
what he needed to not do is something that you and I do routinely. He, he needed to not send them to their room alone because that dredged up all kinds of trauma. That warred with what he was trying to convince them of, that he was never going to abandon them. Same thing God says to us. You're never alone. We sang that, I think, in two different songs this morning. We're never alone. And, you know, when we think of blessings from God, gifts from God, that's usually not high on the list, but I think it needs to be. The gift of never being alone, the, the, of always having someone with us, someone who loves us and accepts us and understands us. That brings us to a second point, along with God's constant presence, is his unconditional acceptance. If I think about when I was a small child, greatest fear was being abandoned. Second greatest fear, that mom and dad would get mad at me, punish me. And again, that was daily reality at the orphanage. Punish for things they did, things they didn't do, things for other people did. Punish just because the staff were having a bad day and wanted to take it out on someone. If you've ever gone to the Humane Society, sometimes you can, you can just walk by and you can, you can spot the animals that are abused because, because they cower at the sight of people. People are here, that means I'm going to get hit again. Children, same thing. Took years for my friend to convince his kids, I might discipline you, I might correct you, because I'm dad and that's what dads do, but I will not punish you out of anger. I will not punish you for something someone else did, and I will not punish you because I'm unhappy with my life. You're safe with me. And we need to let God teach us the same lesson. We, we had good reason to expect punishment from God. We were sinners. Our lives were given over to rebellion. Not only was this world punishing us, not only were we punishing ourselves, but we knew that we were sinners and deserved punishment. Wouldn't have been arbitrary, would have been well-deserved. But what Paul promises us, verse 15, we did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. We received the spirit of adoption, which wars with fear. We're not orphans or POWs or refugees. We're beloved children, and God promises acceptance and protection no matter what. Might discipline? No, he, he will discipline us. <laughs> That's what a loving father does. But he's done being angry with us. He's done being angry with us forever. It's okay to ask him, like little children, are you sure you're not angry? I have conversations on a pretty regular basis with people. I think God's mad at me. I think God's really angry with me. I don't think that God loves me anymore. And it's one thing for people to hear it from me because I can go and show people chapter and verse why I know that's not true. But it's another thing to go to God and hear it from him. God, are you sure you're not mad? Because he will gladly, his spirit will testify to your spirit. I'm sure that I'm not angry and I never will be again. What else characterizes this relationship between parent and small child? Presence, acceptance, closely related Eternal assurance. I remember my friend's adopted sons and, 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 and other adopted children I know and foster children that I've known. They can get almost obsessed over the idea, what do I need to do to stay? I really like it here. This is better than the other places I lived. What do I need to do to stay? What do I need to do so they won't come and take me away? And my friend would tell him again and again, and, and he would tell him as often as they asked was as often as he would, he would say, 
nothing. I'm, I'm your father now. We're your family. No one is coming in to take you away. You're ours, and we're yours. And he would tell them, and he would tell them, and he would tell them, until finally they started to believe it. Paul reminds us that our Father, verse 16, our Father does the same thing. The Spirit of God himself bears witness, is bearing witness, teaching us, reminding us, convincing us, or trying to, that we are children of God, and nothing can change that. No one, not even us, is taking our salvation back. No one, not even us, can revoke our adoption. The only thing we need to do to stay with God is want to. Another challenge my friends faced was food insecurity. Super, super common, especially from people coming from group homes. Growing up in an orphanage in Eastern Europe, food was always a question. Would there be enough for everyone? And if there was enough, would everyone get enough? Or would the older boys steal from the younger boys? Not at all unusual. Even years after someone has been adopted or placed in a, in a stable foster care situation, to find them hoarding food, hiding food, because they've lived too many days where they didn't have any. And, and one of the constant themes in their relationship was the, prob, the, the promise of faithful assistance, the promise of provision, the promise that I'm your father and I will make sure you have what you need. You'll have a place to sleep. You'll have food to eat. You'll have clothes to wear. I'm dad. It's my job to take care of those things. That was a hard lesson for them to learn, especially since in the orphanage, they could get punished just for asking. So the idea that they could say, I'm still hungry and not get hit, they could say to dad, my shoes don't fit anymore and not get yelled at, it, 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 it took them a while to, to realize they could come home from school and say, I need money for, the, for a field trip and not get raged at just as it is for us sometimes. I grew up in what from the outside looked like an idyllic, you know, suburban home. But even in, even in my home, if I asked for the wrong thing at the wrong time, I'd get yelled at for being ungrateful and spoiled. I don't think I'm the only one, which is why I think we all have a hard time believing Matthew 7, 9. If we ask God for bread, he'll never give us a stone. Matthew 7, 9. If we ask God for bread, he won't give us a stone. We have a hard time, many of us, because of the way that we were brought up believing Hebrews 4, 16, we can come boldly to God's throne of grace, that we might find mercy and obtain grace for help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 16. But that's what God promises. And that's what Paul reminds us of. We can say, Daddy, I'm hungry. Daddy, I'm cold. Daddy, I'm scared. We can even just say, Daddy. Verse 15, when we don't have the words, when we can't find the words, we can cry out like little children. We can just cry out, Daddy, Abba. And it'll be enough. God will understand. He's our Father. Just like we know our child's hungry cry is different than their I need to be changed cry is different than their scared cry is different than their I want to be held cry. When all we can muster is God, please. God, just, just, God. Our Father in heaven hears our cry and knows our need and 
cares. Presence, assurance, acceptance, assistance, closely related to one more, guidance. God hears our cry for practical help. He also knows our need for parental help, education, direction. When my friend brought his sons home, he was surprised at first. The harder he tried to bless them sometimes, the, the more frightened they got. And he figured out one of the things he was trying to do was give them what they'd never had. He was trying to give them choices, thinking that that would be loving. What do you want to wear? What do you want to eat? What do you want to do today? That was terrifying for them. It might be hard for you and I to think about freedom as frightening, but that's what it was because they'd never had options before. They were terrified of making the wrong choice. Does that resonate with anyone? They, they grew up being told what they were going to do. They ate the food that was put in front of them. They wore the clothes they had because that's all they had. When, when, they, when they had this, this opportunity to choose things, to decide things, it was paralyzing. What if I choose the wrong thing? And my friend realized he needed to help them navigate all of these choices, all of these options, and he needed to reassure them, you can ask. We can talk about this stuff. You don't have to figure it out all by yourself. In fact, you're not supposed to. And neither are we. Because we can be just as paralyzed by the choices set before us as two kids plucked from a, rough, a Russian orphanage and dropped in suburban New Jersey. We can be just as paralyzed. Should I, should I do this or that for a job? Live in this city or this town? Marry this person or, 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 or pursue another relationship? Go to this church or that church? Serve in this ministry or that ministry? But we have the same opportunity to go to our Father we don't have to sort it out by ourselves. In, in God's word, he, he tells us pretty clearly, okay, here's the stuff that's inbounds, here's the stuff that out, that's out of bounds. Those are the easy choices. The choices between good and evil, those are the easy ones. It's the choices between good and best that are the hard ones, the paralyzing ones, even for us. But Romans 8.14, the children of God are led by the Spirit. We not only have the Logos, the written word of God, we have the Rhema, the living word of God that speaks to us from the word of God. And we have God's still small voice. And we have the peace of God that surpasses understanding. And we have the counsel of God that he's placed in other believers speaking into our lives. God, the Holy Spirit, is sent by God the Father who loves us, who wants the best for us, who knows what's best for us, and wants to tell us. And funny thing that happens when we do, last point, when we start to accept our Father's guidance, we start to take on a family resemblance, even as adopted kids. You've seen this happen with, with married couples, right? Over that time, they start to look like each other, talk like each other. It, it happens with adopted children as well. I've seen it. It's crazy. Church that I used to serve at had a relationship with a ministry called House of Esther out of Calvary Chapel Downey. They would help women pursue adoption for children as an alternative to abortion. More than once, Pastor Jeff and his wife would come visit, and they'd say, hey, we know that we placed a, a, a boy with your, with your congregation. We'd love to meet him. Oh, we know that we placed a girl with a family in your church. We'd love to, to, to meet them. And, and one time I remember they said, okay, where, where's Caleb? 
And I said, oh, he's right, he's right over there. Okay, I recognize his parents, but that's their biological son. Where's Caleb, their adopted son? No, that's, that's Caleb. Because <laughs> he looked just like his adopted father. It's not part of our text today, but when we get down to verse 29, notice, Paul's going to tell us as we enjoy God's presence, as we grow in confidence of assurance and acceptance, as we take advantage of assistance and guidance, we will take on a family resemblance. We'll be conformed more and more into the image of God. Because of the choices we're making, because of the peace and joy that accompany those choices. Is that us? Before we even get there, the question that we've got to ask ourselves is, do we want it to be us? The relationship that small children have with a father. Do we want that? It's the relationship that God our Father wants to have with us. Is it a relationship that we're willing to have with him? A relationship in which dependence isn't something to be ashamed of, but something to be cherished. Where dependence isn't something that we outgrow, but grow into. Not something that fades over time, but becomes stronger and sweeter and deeper with time. Is that what we want? I'm asking because Paul's reminding us this morning, God's offering that relationship, but he's not imposing it. He's not demanding it. If we're determined to do this life on his own, he won't stop us. I think about my friend. Adopted those two boys from Russia. It's case in point. Two brothers, bio, biological brothers, same birth parents, and same adopted parents, obviously. Same redemption, if you will. Radically different outcomes. One of them clung to his adoptive parents, identified with them, trusted them, depended on them, let them love him. The other could not grow up and get out fast enough. What his parents in, intended as loving boundaries, he saw as buzz-killing rules. The more support they offered, the more he felt stifled. The more they tried to become a family is the more he wanted his freedom, as the way he thought of freedom. He, he was grateful. He was grateful to no longer be in the orphanage. He had no interest. He had no intention of becoming a son. And, 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 you know, and you'd like to think if he, if, he, if he stopped and thought about all the work and effort and love and, and resources it took to bring him home from Russia, maybe he would have realized all his parents wanted was to keep him safe and help him grow and teach him to use his freedom. That's all they were trying to do. They just wanted to love him. His brother, completely different thing. He, he, he was, what, what can I do to repay you? And, 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 it, and it took a long time before he believed his parents when they said, the only thing you need to do to repay us is let us be your parents. Let us love you. We're sons and daughters this evening, and we have that same choice, those, those two roads available to us. If we've come to Christ, if we're filled with the Spirit of God, Paul says we are children of God. Are we being children are we being sons and daughters? Or are we trying to outgrow God? Do we keep coming to him as little children? Or are we trying to be independent of him? You know, if, if adoption is the high point of the gospel, and I think that it is, 
If adoption is the high point of the gospel, then letting God love us, provide for us, protect us, lead us, coming to him as little children and letting him parent us. That's, if, 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 if adoption is the high point of the gospel, then letting God be our father has got to be the highest form of worship. And dependency on him has got to be the, the deepest, truest expression of our gratitude. 